0: Good morning i am kelly brown douglas dean of the episcopal divinity school at union theological seminary in new york city and i thank you for joining us in another one of our just conversations coming from the 80th episcopal general convention here in baltimore it is really a privilege for me to have joining me in this conversation today bishop sean roll who serves as the Bishop of the Diocese of Northwestern Pennsylvania, where he has been since 2007, and also the Provisional Bishop of the Diocese in Western New York, where he was named Provisional Bishop in 2019. He also serves as Parliamentarian for the House of Bishops. So he is a very busy man here at our General Convention. So I thank you for taking this time to join me in conversation, Bishop Brooks.
1: Oh, it's my privilege, Dean. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, I want to jump right in. <laughs> a couple of nights ago, there was a passionate discussion of white Christian nationalism on the floor of the House of Bishops in response to, I believe, a proposed resolution. You have, in your role as bishop, spoken quite frequently about what you call the disease of white supremacy and your call for white churches to repent in relationship not only to the racialized mass shooting in Buffalo, which is a part of your diocese in Western uh, New York, but in response to other uh, acts of white supremacist violence and terror. I wanna ask you in light of the many discussions going on on the floor of the House of Bishops, what will it mean for the Episcopal Church to repent in regard to the disease that is the sin of white supremacy?
1: Well, thank you. It has, it has multiple meanings, but I think what it's going to mean for the Episcopal Church is to get to a place of reckoning. A place of institutional reckoning about the issue of race and racism. So we've got a, a lot of people um, who, well, in in over the past decades, we've 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 talked a big talk about <laughs> racial reconciliation, and but doing the systemic work is really the, the 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 next step, and it's it's the needed work. And one of the one of the steps is institutionally to recognize our complicity and how we've benefited, and to take steps in the direction of that reckoning. And we did that this time mm-hmm. uh, yeah, with Resolution A-125, which, which begins to, to set up a new uh, group of, of people who care about these issues to, to be also given funds from the episcopal church's considerable wealth much of which earned on on the backs of those who have been marginalized and to give that group some some level of freedom and autonomy from the system i mean let's just say there's going to maybe a dotted line to, to the church but but one in which uh, they have the, the the freedom to begin to that we have the freedom to, be, to begin to act so we're not just saying oh, racism is 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 a sin, it's a disease, we're doing something about it. That's, that's real and that's sacrificial. And I think we've taken at least a step in that direction and we've been on the journey, but now it's starting to get real. So when you start talking about the money, now, yeah. now we're
0: talking. Yeah, usually you can tell people's values and priorities if you, as we say, follow the money. And I like the language you have traditionally used in regard to white supremacy, uh, racism, et cetera, and that is the language of repent, which means, of course, you know, turning around and doing something differently. And so with this uh, task force, let me first ask what, or the committee that's been set up that's come out of this resolution, What will that look like for the church, not simply internally in terms of uh, structures and systems, but will it place the Episcopal Church uh, in any way differently, if you will, on the public square?
1: I I, I think it has the potential to do that. Now, that is if we can get out of our own way. And that's 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 always an issue for the church. It's always a, for an institution like ours, which is so entrenched as to get out of our own way and whether we're really going to do the hard work of repentance, whether we can really make the turn. I think it does position us because the Episcopal Church has this is the understatement of the day, has <laughs> considerable wealth. Yes. So we're now talking about looking at all of these funds and seeing how mm. they can be reappropriated, mm. that's going to give us the ability, the means in the world in which we live, uh, which requires those, those financial means. But really, then, do we have the imagination and the willingness, I think, to repent? And that, yeah. I think, remains to be seen. we talk mm. talked about it. Right. We have a vision for it. It remains to be seen to me whether we'll be able to do something creative or whether we'll just continue in the kind of performative self-righteousness, which we're also good at, Um, which is to say it's bad, uh, but really keep doing the same thing.
0: No, I well, I appreciate uh, your frankness here because that's exactly right. And will we have the moral courage to do something about it beyond what we say in the resolutions that are on the floor? What can we learn? What should the church learn from uh, your response as provisional uh, bishop in Western New York and, of course, in uh, your diocese of Pennsylvania, your response to uh, the Buffalo? a white supremacist shooting
1: well I, I don't know um, because I'm still learning so I'm not sure what 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 can be learned I can I can say some things that I've observed and maybe kind of a, some a way that I've approached this it's been controversial in my own context I right. must tell you um, <laughs> you know one of the things one of the inter- you know first of all the the just a tragic scene this is a neighborhood grocery store. That's right. I was I was I was down there one day and I was talking to one of the, the police women who who grew up in that neighborhood. And She said, you know, that's the store my grandmother took me into. That's right. I mean, that's the, that's the store that everybody knew you went to because it smelled like fried chicken, like the best fried chicken in the city. That's like that's their claim to fame. And that and mm. that part is I mean, it's, it's a neighborhood store. So mm-hmm. imagine that somebody walked somebody drove 200 miles and decided to shoot people. And that story right. is just, it's, it's like, it's, it's unimaginable. We decided though, that as a diocese, we we're going to take the lead and we were going to get behind and be allies with people who live in the community, the churches mm-hmm. that are right there, including, um, uh, uh, one of our own Episcopal churches, a historically black church in that region. But one of the things that I got, I got a, I got a really criticizing a voice from a number of people saying, why aren't you having a prayer service at the cathedral? Why aren't you praying at our cathedral? And here's the interesting thing about the cathedral, which is a mostly white cathedral on the, on the right side of town. Right. Okay? right. Uh, and why aren't you out there? And I said, you know, the interesting, I couldn't respond to that person because I was sitting at the racial equity roundtable mm-hmm. with leaders of the city of Buffalo, figuring mm-hmm. out how to strategize to make the systemic change that we needed to make. I wasn't out trying to grab a camera. yeah and so it's taking the lead so you know down the road yes we did we had a vigil at the site in which which we invited Vashti McKenzie uh AME Bishop who's who was amazing and several uh pastors of historically black churches in that region who are already there and have roots and we took the lead of our own historically black uh Episcopal church not to say um let's let other people do our work for us but we're going to be allies in this we're not going to be colonial like, you know, let's go tell, let's go tell these people um, how right. it ought to be. So I think, though, ultimately, though, what that's done is allow us to build um, relationships and allyships um, across difference and, and across race and, and, and also to be at the, at the table where the decisions are being made about the money, the resources, and the levers of power which are going to change that neighborhood. And, and I, that was hard for people. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I got to tell you. Yeah. No, I am sure because you used a word here, sort of colonial. Uh, our church, uh, this is news to no one. I mean, you know, we aren't colonizing adjacent. Uh, we, have, <laughs> we are not. Right. We have been, <laughs> we have, uh, we have been right. colonizers, right? And, you know, we got our wealth, as you mentioned, because we have been the church of wealthy slaveholders. Uh, they didn't accidentally sit in our pews. They uh, were those who provided provided the pews, if you will, and uh, on the backs of uh, those who were enslaved and on the backs of slavery. So what I like in, in hearing what you said is the importance of listening to the people in the community. And now this brings me to Baltimore. We're, RGC is in Baltimore. And you know, one of the reasons we are having these conversations is bringing Baltimore to the GC in terms of these podcasts with local Baltimore activists and leaders. What difference has it made for this general convention to be in Baltimore, or has it made a difference to the general convention?
1: Well, I, I I hear us talking a lot of, of, about Baltimore and awareness of our context. I think it's a it's it's a powerful witness, but also just to be in in the presence of a place that um, is 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 doing such tremendous work. I mean, there's an inspiring leaders in this community that we've borne witness to. There was a shooting blocks away from the convention center. We and we were able My to we'll yeah. start with.
0: Yeah, my son lives right down the street from where you guys are, and that from that shooting. That's right.
1: It's you know another uh, another act of violence, and yet um, we were able to 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 stand in the midst of that, and in the midst of the Diocese of Maryland, which is doing tremendous work on racial reconciliation. We were able to bear witness to that work. Uh, I think it means something that we're we're in a city. Uh, like Baltimore, that we're able to bring the, the economic impact of the convention itself, but also stand in solidarity. And I think um, we've been able to see that not at the level I think we were hoping, given the shortness of this convention. You know, when we were planning to be here and make a $25 million impact alone, just on the economy, and spend more time with community leaders. But it's been inspiring to people. And it's, it's the talk in the background, uh, what's going on, and we're in this city, and it's important. We have to learn. Yeah, and it's certainly it's certainly um, I, I've I've learned so many things from from being in this place. No,
0: again, I like this language of of listening and learning, and of course, yes. As I uh, sorry to interrupt you when I said that my son lives down the street from where the shooting takes place and where you people where the convention is held. You know that on that corner, it seems to me all of the complexity of violence came together yes. the violence that is poverty and you know as i say to my son no one said wakes up and says i can't wait to grow up and be a squeegee worker uh, uh and by the time the violence right. uh erupts onto the street into gun violence is the violence that violence has already created and so you know what what can the church what you know what can we learn? What can we do? Baltimore is just an example of that, uh, which is a part of our context across the country in which we're trying to be church. How do we respond, Bishop Rowe, to that?
1: Well, I think I think we have to respond by by listening, but also by putting our considerable institutional resources toward the toward the efforts that are going to make a difference. I think we don't need very many more resolutions Yes, um, um, you. I mean they're very—you know—they're helpful in setting policy, right? I, I, but I mean, what I'm saying is it, alongside of those resolutions, with well, like yes. A125, which is a powerful one, we just created yes. uh, a, a new vehicle, perhaps for doing the racial reconciliation work. But I think it's about bringing bringing the means, uh, the considerable means of an organization like the church to the work. Now we've we've dipped our toe in that water. As a church, before and we backed off. I mean, the general convention special program from the nineteen sixties, um, we tried, mm-hmm. uh, but but once it got uh, a little too uncomfortable, once we started dealing with organizations and groups that we weren't particularly comfortable with, once the people in the pew started to squirm, we killed it. Yeah, and I use yeah. that word. I mean, I yeah. we it, yeah. we 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 set it aside. We we lasted about three years, but we put. Uh, Dean, uh, uh, the equivalent in those days of about uh, thirty-five million dollars, right, into right. the effort. So um, I think we can not just bring dollars to it, but but our our work. And if we're going to be relevant to the world,
2: uh, yes. we got to get in
1: the game. Yeah. But see, we like to talk because <laughs> it's easier. But when I when I start to see, can we bring the structures around? when are we going to put the policies in place to actually ensure the kind of equality inside the church, then we can take it out. But I think other than that, it's, it's just, it's, it's a lot of performative self-righteousness and we're good at that. As I said.
0: Yeah. Oh, I, I I love that. So what's your are I'm going to get ready to get you out of here so you can get back to to lunch so you can get back to the floor. Uh, So a couple last questions. What's your takeaway? from you've been on the floor the whole time, you're the parliamentarian, you were probably one of the few people that have read all of the hundreds of resolutions uh, that are on uh, the floor and before the convention. What, as you think about, and this is the last day of the convention, uh, what just happened over these last four days, resolutions and
1: all, what's your takeaway and how's the church better? Well, I think that the church is uh, poised for a continuation and perhaps even a new chapter we've set in our presiding bishop and our general convention has, has has set the stage for becoming beloved community and i really think we've we've taken tremendous steps in that direction there's a there's a, a spirit that's palpable here uh, a sense of cohesion about about our mission and about what we're here to accomplish we just elected the first latina woman yes. to be the, the president of the house of deputies and she's amazing by the way yes. we just have to watch to see the great work that she's going to be able to do. That was unthinkable. I yes. have a generation ago, not the least of which, because now we now pay the position. So it doesn't have to be somebody who's retired and of independent means. Yes. Yes. So we've created a new vehicle uh, for um, for thinking about how we do our racial reconciliation work. And we've committed to the funding it's revolutionary for the Episcopal I mean, for the Episcopal Church. I know for those of you listening, you're probably thinking, what's the big deal? But let me tell you, for this state institution, we just we just said we're gonna look at our hundred and fifty million dollars and probably put about 10% a year toward this. Mm-hmm. That's huge. Yeah. I just yeah. feel like there's an energy to to come together and and do the work and put the institutional half behind it, not just talk about it. That makes me excited. That's my takeaway. Well, you know what? I
0: think that's a good place to leave it. And yes, we had uh, Lydia Harrison conversation with us. And so hopefully with energy such as yours, and I mean, moral energy and a moral voice that it will help our church expand. As I always say, it's moral imaginary and grow more into being church and bring alive the resolutions that need to be bought. Alive. Uh, uh, Thank you, Bishop Rowe, for being with me in this conversation, for your work, uh, not simply at the DC, but uh, your ministry and your work in the world. Thank you. Thank you. you. And blessings to you. Thank you. In today's second interview, I'm speaking with Tim Reagan from St. Paul's Place and Groundworks Kitchen. St. Paul's Place is a social enterprise working to strengthen individuals and families in southwest Baltimore. It does so by providing programs, services, and support. Groundworks Kitchen is their restaurant, which has a free 12-week culinary arts program designated to train community members for careers in food service. Students in this program receive industry-recognized credentials, access to local jobs, and every dollar made goes back to expanding the programs of St. Paul's Place. I really hope you enjoy learning more about this important program and the work they are doing in Baltimore, as we speak with their executive director, Tim Reagan. I want to begin by talking about the very important work that your organization, Paul's Place and Groundwork Kitchen is doing in the city. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, both of these uh, organizations, if you will, Paul's Place and Groundwork's Kitchen's relationship to it? How, how did you begin?
2: Well, thanks, thanks, Kelly. Um, thanks for the question. Um, Paul's Place has been here serving the Pigtown community in Southwest Baltimore since 1982 when two volunteers from St. John's and Glendon, Maryland approached the rector of St. Paul the Apostle on Washington Boulevard, which is in our neighborhood, with an idea to start a soup kitchen. And so they began serving soup and sandwiches twice weekly. This was 40 years ago. And that's grown now to um, a daily hot meal program, five days a week. Um, and as we kind of grew over the course of those 40 years. We added other things that we do at Paul's Place, laundry services, showers. We have a nursing clinic, actually, that uh, we do in partnership with the University of Maryland Nursing School. Um, We have a case management team which provides case management services all the way up to kind of what we call tier three, which helps people get into housing. And then we also added programs for children and youth that we run during the school year and kind of what we call the after three program and then we run summer camp um, during the summer Um, we've also added a peer recovery advocate at paul's place who's helping you know with our guests who suffer from addiction and he does outreach actually a little bit beyond the neighborhood in fact we're uh, we we just got funding for a mobile outreach van, so we, we're really excited about we're going to be adding a van to the, our peer recovery work. Um, you know, we, over the last probably four years or so, Paul's Place has been um, starting up the Groundwork Kitchen um, culinary training program and uh, social enterprise in the form of a, a, a restaurant. Um, the groundwork kitchen opened uh, last year um, and we started our culinary training program towards the end of the year Um, we had to put a pause on the restaurant operations earlier in 2022 but we're still running our culinary training program in fact our third class graduates next week on uh, on june 30th Um, and we're actively recruiting our fourth class which will start the, the week after so we've we've learned the uh, kind of wash um, rinse repeat cycle of uh, running a training program like that. Um, we've we've got we're fully staffed um, on that operation, um, and we've been successfully placing students into employment, and in all out of all three classes so far. Um, so. The Workforce Training Program is really off to a great start.
0: So there's so many questions that I want to ask from here, and I probably will start with you telling us something about your students and then circle back, because what you have sort of glanced over is the way, in fact, that you started as a soup kitchen serving what 40 or so clients uh, mm-hmm. a day, and now you are serving thousands. And how do you move from a soup kitchen to an organization now that is serving thousands of people and meeting a variety of needs? And, and what, you know, the church claims to want to be serving in this way. What, what did, can the church learn from this model?
2: I I think what's really important about the way Paul's place has grown um, and grown into, you know, 40 years uh, of service, and now Groundwork Kitchen, which is a new enterprise, is we've really listened to our guests. Um, And it's important that we call them guests. Um, They're not clients, they're not patients, they're not participants, they're guests. And we have really an approach, uh, a hospitality approach. Um, which fits nicely together with uh, what we're doing in Groundwork Kitchen, in the restaurant, um, and in our training program. So I think staying attuned to what the needs of our guests are and responding with an appropriate level of service um, is how we've we've grown to, you know, from, from sandwiches to 20 different programs that we offer at Paul's Place. Uh, I, I think it's also um, looking at some of the economic factors in Baltimore has been important and really looking at some of the root causes of the the, the problems that our guests um, are struggling with. And, you know, we we know that employment is really a key driver of increased economic stability. Um, but the residents in Southwest Baltimore have a lot of barriers to obtaining employment. Um, you know, even before COVID, over almost 30% of adults in Southwest Baltimore over the age of 25 lacked a high school diploma or equivalency. Um, the employment rate in Southwest Baltimore was four times the national average. So we we, you know, the, the idea of, of developing a workforce development program. Where we're helping people gain marketable skills and and build a career um, was going to be important. To solving, you know, was getting at the root cause of the problem that many of our guests have.
0: Yeah, one of the things. Thank you for pointing out the importance of talking about guests and not clients, uh, because one of the things that really struck me on your website. Uh, Mm -hmm. was that indeed you talked about guests. And so that your guests are not simply objects for charity, uh, but human beings, right, with needs that need to be cared for and responded to. And one of the common themes that we've been hearing as we talk to persons like yourself and organizations who are working in Baltimore is how important it is to listen uh, to, to the guest, as opposed to coming in and saying, this is what you need, but listening to the guests for what they in fact need and responding to that need. Can you tell us what's a typical guest? What are, what are the sort of, uh, who are your typical guests and what do those, or, or is there a typical guest and, and what do those needs typically look like?
2: Yeah. I, I think it's, it's interesting. They, the um, you know, our, our guests, um, you know, they're, they're, they're generally under the poverty level. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they, they've got a variety of um, of issues that they're, that they're dealing with that range from, you know, addiction, to health problems, to employment problems, to housing problems. Um, I mean, it's, it's really, you know, and it's a wide-ranging age group it's you know um a, across the guests who come into paul's place um in our in our um in our workforce development program at groundwork kitchen you know you we would have thought that you know uh, we'd be primarily getting younger people we you know we focus on people who are 18 or older um but you know the average age is probably somewhere in the 30s um these are our folks who've had trouble you know managing a career um and you know we're trying to give them a set of skills that they can move not only that we place them into their first job but we want to help them with their second and third and fourth job you know we want to see their career progress um so you know i i, I think the um if, if there's anything that's kind of uh, a common element i would say is that is that the our guests need support yeah. and we want to meet them where they are um, with, with services that really respond directly to their report, to, to their needs. And I, I think the other thing that, you know, we, we take kind of a trauma informed care approach to how we deal mm-hmm. with guests, which means we, we, we aren't in, we don't have kind of the typical scarcity mindset about right. our guests. That That's not what we're, you know, uh that's not the approach that we take we really take an approach of really what can we build on what are the positives that that people bring and and we want to be um timely and efficient with how we how we work with guests how we engage with them um uh and 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 provide something that really you know is is life-changing for them i mean one thing that we do right now i can talk about um so we've, we've started providing um, dental, we've provided dental care um, through a relationship with a, a dentist and, and we've actually supported some of our guests getting dentures mm. and, and it seems like a simple kind of a thing, but it's life-changing. That's um, exactly what you, you know, the guest comes back with a, a broad smile um, and, and just, you know, tearful about like how how they feel better about themselves, how they're more energized and engaged. You know how they feel more confident, um, where you know for years they may have you know their dental care may have been um, been an issue. So you know those are the kinds of of things that we in, in every program that we offer. Um, you know, we have immediate kind of feedback from our guests about about the impact um, on them, um, and you know, we we're we're going into a period now where we're uh, about to undertake a strategic planning process. Um, you know, we've been Paul's Place has been here for forty years. We've grown. We've done a lot of different things, but. We really want to focus on where should we be for the next five to 10 years? Like, what are the issues that we really want to attack and put our resources and talent towards? So the very first part of that process, which we expect to begin within a month or so, is really going to be listening. Um, yeah. Listening to our guests, listening to the neighborhood, and the neighborhood includes not only businesses, but residents. Um understanding our kind of brother and sister partner agencies um, that are nearby uh, that, that that serve some of the same people, um, understanding what's happening in the faith community um, around some of the same very same services that we provide. Um, and you know, we've got a lot of expertise on our team and lots of ideas about the things we wanna do, but we really wanna um, go deep into listening to what what the neighborhood really needs and what the city needs, uh, because you know some of these uh, you know the issues that we're dealing with are being dealt with in other parts of the city too.
0: No, again, I just love this emphasis uh, and your re-emphasis on listening and clearly, uh, that's something that the church must learn to do. Uh, not come in with solutions, but let those solutions emerge from the ground up uh, by listening to the people whom we claim to care for and want to serve. In that, let me ask you this, focusing on Groundworks Kitchen, why culinary arts? (laughs) Most most programs think of things like uh, teaching people hairdressing or barbershop or something of those kinds of things. And you all said culinary arts, why culinary arts?
2: Well, we started as a soup kitchen, right? Um, so we started by giving out sandwiches and then we built our soup kitchen and we're known for, for that. So we already had kind of a, a foot in the game, if you will, of the food service industry. Um, the other thing that I would say though, um, and I say this to a lot of folks, if you go into any room, in fact, you can do this in your conference, ask the, the people in any meeting, how many of you have worked in food service and i will tell you that probably everyone will raise their hand almost you're good it's a it's a it's a low barrier for entry in terms of getting a job um, there's a uh you know the, the set of skills that you need um are pretty um definitive and and can be trained in a relatively short period of time our program's 12 weeks 12 weeks long um but we're we're training people in you know foundational culinary skills they're also getting um certified as surf safe manager level um uh, uh cooks um they're you know they're being prepared for for work as a cook on the line um and you know the and and those jobs are plentiful I, I, you know i can tell you that the, <laughs> I've talked to a lot of veterans of the industry who say there are as many culinary jobs out there now as there were when I started, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. In fact, during the pandemic, in my former life, I ran a similar program. We got more calls for students Mm -hmm. during the pandemic, cold calls than Mm -hmm. we did prior. And that's because, you know, no matter what happened in the food service industry, Either the restaurant business or the institutions during the pandemic, the job that they needed was the cook. Right. Uh, right. And so, you know, it, it's also I think as a as a um, a profession, it has certain rules. It has the kinds of rules that and and um, practices that that need to be reinforced. So you know, the kind of career skills about showing up on time, being ready and in uniform, getting your station, the whole mise en place idea of what a cook does, you know, getting your station ready. Um, you know, and, you know, some of the best feedback that I've ever received about students um, is that the students change the culture in the kitchen of our the employers that they're being placed at. I actually had someone tell me that. Um, and that's what you wanna hear. I mean, it's not so much how fast are you, how fast can you dice an onion um, or run a line? It's really like, what's your, how are you as an employee? And are you engaged and willing to invest in yourself? Um, So, you know, I could go on and on about the food service business. I love it. I worked in it myself when I was much younger, but my career really wasn't in it, But, um, but I love uh i I love the business i love it's a real practical skill that you can teach that is it's it's life-changing work in the sense of if you saw our students on day one and then you saw them on graduation day they're like different people they look you
0: in the eyes oh i'm sorry i was gonna say so share one of the success stories i read some of these stories online and uh of people have talked about hope and the things that you've done. Tell, share with us one of your success stories, of well, the many that you've had.
2: The the um, the story that I think I would um, would share. I mean, yeah. You know, what I would say about our students, kind of overall, is that they um, when they come into the program, they're they 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 don't have any any technical skill but they also don't have any real career skill and they often don't have any communication skill mm. and and you know what we what, what happens when they come through the program is they they learn how to talk to each other and they mm. learn how to work together as a team and so you know we throughout the course of the training we they have little comp- mini competitions mm. um, and you know the students have to work together on them um and you know these are often folks who've never had to do that before um i think the real um you know we've we've had students go on to pretty advanced restaurant places uh of employment but also really institutional you know more institutional settings and you know the the fact is that we're we're really trying to meet the students where they are. Not every student wants to be Gordon Ramsay or, you know, some <laughs> famous chef. But but they they realize when they come into our program that wow, there are other places where cooks are needed. Hospitals, senior centers, schools, public schools. There are 700 public school culinary jobs in the city of Baltimore. And those jobs are, you know, geographically distributed and, you know, provide lots of scheduling options. And, you know, so it really kind of fits the need. Um, And often with students that we serve, you know, some who have an addiction problem, you know, they don't really wanna be in a restaurant with a bar. Um, And so there are, you know, we're providing other opportunities. One of our biggest success stories actually and the first three classes here, groundwork, is with another local nonprofit called Baltimore Station, where I think mm. we've placed five people now. I know mm. it was three. I think it's five now, um, because you know Baltimore Station is a um, a shelter uh, in uh, in the Federal Hill neighborhood of Baltimore, right a mile away from us, um, and they have round the clock, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and so they need they need cooks. And um, and they are a good employer. Um, they pay well, um, and so they've been a great partner of uh, placing our students with them. And you know, I think our students also have you know because of how of the training program that they came through, at groundwork and the relationship with Paul's Place, they have a better sense of kind of the need. Um, now we we also have uh, another really good local partner who's hired multiple students already. That's a black-owned restaurant in Baltimore called Local. I think they've hired two or three students so far, um, and you know that that's the kind of we we really see our ourselves as helping kind of seed the industry here in Baltimore. Um, and, I, and I think so far uh, it, it's been a success here at Groundwork.
0: So wanna get you out on on this sort of a a two-part question in relationship to the church. First of all, thank you uh, for sharing uh, this. And again, it just uh, reemphasizes the importance of the work that you are doing in in Baltimore. So the church is coming in
2: to -hmm. Baltimore
0: for some seven to 10 days. What is it that you want the church to know what should they take away, having learned, and what should the church leave behind.
2: So I want to quote Robert Edgar, who um, who ran DC Central Kitchen, and is now um, uh, kind of an advisor. He's out of that out of the game, so to speak. But um, but I, who I follow and. His quote, which really has a lot of meaning for me, is that too often philanthropy and nonprofit service have more to do with the redemption of the giver than <laughs> the liberation of the recipient.
1: Mm.
2: And and I'm all about the liberation of the recipient, mm. and that's what I want Paul's Place to be and Groundwork Kitchen to be, and I think our team wants that too. And, and, you know, we certainly appreciate um, all of the, the, the support of treasure and time that we get through donations and through volunteers, et cetera. I mean, our work is, is you know, we're not if we can't do our work without that, that's clear. But really focusing on the liberation of the, of the, of the receiver is really understanding what their life is. And, and what they're dealing with and being open to supporting that, which isn't necessarily um, what you, what you really think about. Um, but, you know, I've, I've been, I had a long for-profit career before I got into the nonprofit game about, about eight years ago or so. And um, I could tell you that the, the the most meaningful work we're doing is where we're really connecting to the guests that we're serving and we and we're helping them change their life and become more self-sufficient um and able to to manage their lives in a more productive way um i mean you know ultimately the idea, you know it would <laughs> we'd love to be out of business right yeah. um Uh, But we've been here for 40 years and the need is still out there Um, and it's um, it's a changing need in some ways It goes deeper in some areas. Um, But it's but it's there. And if you know, if you're a believer in, you know, social justice, trying to improve the lives of, you know, your neighbors and that's who they are. They're our neighbors. you have to really, um, you 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 can't think that you're flying in with the solution. You have to be in the space, understand what the need is, and help develop the solution with the guests.
0: No more powerful a message, and no more important of a message for the church to hear, really, Tim. You know. So- If you're interested in social uh, justice, no. For us, we believe that social justice isn't the add-on, it's the gospel. And that means, as you say, that people are our guests, are our neighbors, and the church must be more concerned about the liberation of our neighbors and those in need than they are about their own redemption. Thank you for this very meaningful conversation and for your very important work. And I know that our church will be made better by listening to this conversation and heeding your words. Thank you so much.
2: Well, thank you so much. It was great to share about Paul's Place and Groundwork Kitchen with your, with your members.